when I first got converted, some of the verses that were that we brought up, the Bible verses that we brought up in the last few weeks in this It Is Written series were given to me. When, when A lot of times it's very common when a person becomes a new believer, we tell them, hey, you need to read the Bible. And the reason we say that is because like God told Joshua uh, in, when he called him into the serving the leadership of Israel, he said, meditate in this book of the law day and night. Then when you meditate in the word day and night, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Right, Paul told Timothy, we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago, how it, as we meditate in the scriptures, the scriptures are help us, they're, they're, they're good for making us wise for salvation and every good work and to thoroughly equip us for every good work. So my mentors, what they would do is probably what happened to you at some point in your journey, if you became a Christian, someone said to you, hey, just read the Bible and do what it says. That's literally at face value, impossible. Let me show you what I mean. Proverbs 18.22 says, if you find a wife, you're blessed. Then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, it's better not to marry. How do I literally do both those, right? Something a little more serious. Deuteronomy 7.2, 7 verse 2, when God is calling the Israelites to, to answer their covenant, he says this to them, go utterly conquer your enemies, destroy them, show them no mercy. Jesus comes along later in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You literally cannot do both those at the same time. And this leads to, to an important thing that in order for the Bible, to, for, for it to bless me as it were, for me to make my way prosperous, for me to have good success, I have to be able to apply it right. There's this thing called application. So the first week we just looked at, is the Bible the word of God? And, and the second week we looked at, how do you study it and interpret it? And we touched upon applying it. And I'm going to look at that a little bit more today because here's the question. Why does accurate Bible inter interpretation or application even matter? Jesus said, anyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to him like a person who built his house on a rock. So think like a bedrock foundation that's solid. But if you don't, then it's like building on sand, and, and there's a storm that's coming, and great will be the fall of that person. So Jesus says, again, uh, when you do it, you're wise, and it has an eternal blessing. Also, the apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.1, as he's writing to Timothy, trying to help him lead the church and help him understand what he's going to be facing, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from what? That means people who knew Christ are going to walk away giving heed. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines or teachings of demonic powers. So he's saying there's spiritual forces that are going to lead people astray. When people begin to wander, that, they just think they're choosing another path. That's not what the Apostle Paul foresaw, which leads to his second letter to Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, he says, Of those people, they will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So what are they doing? They tell me what I want to hear, which is going to lead to what Second Peter, what the Apostle Peter wrote to the church that he was writing to in, in, in chapter 3, verse 16. They become ignorant and unstable, and they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Twisting the scriptures. 
How is it that the scriptures are twistable? I mean, aren't they clear? I mean, shouldn't the scriptures be clear enough that if I read it, I can just order my life according to it? I can just read it and do it, right? And if God is almighty, couldn't he be all clear in what he's writing? I think so. Which means if he wasn't clear, at least in certain areas, there's a reason. Jesus had a Bible scholar come up to him in his day. He said, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, saying the entire law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Old Testament hangs on these verses. This guy, being crafty as he was, smart guy, probably did what a lot of us would do. Cool, okay, I get the love God part. I, I hear you, we're called to love our neighbor. So who exactly is my neighbor? What's he doing? He's already trying to build boundaries. He's already trying to, to build hedges on his obedience. He's already trying to find the loophole in God's word to do what he wants to do the way he wants to do it. And it's not too different than some of us, right? I'm guilty as charged. Okay, I won't point at you, I'll point at me. It, it, and he isn't questioning Jesus' interpretation. He's questioning how to apply it. Where interpretation deals with what does God mean, application deals with what is God, how do I put into effect what he means in my life? And so I believe the Bible is crystal clear on certain things and then fuzzy on other things for a couple reasons. He's clear about who Jesus is, his, his birth, his his, his, his growing up and his life and his deity as the son of God and dying on a cross for our sins and rising again. Like I can line up multiple, multiple denominations and they will get an agreement on that. And after that, everybody goes every 50 ways from Sunday. You probably do that in this room. I say something, I'm sure I preach stuff and you walk away going, I don't agree with him. <laughs> and I'm okay with that to a certain extent. <laughs> I believe it's crystal clear. In other words, if, if Almighty God, if God is Almighty, He can be all clear, but if He chooses not to be all clear, then I have to believe that it's with a purpose. And I believe that purpose is to reveal our hearts. Really to us. It's not like God doesn't know our hearts. It's oftentimes we don't. Have you ever gone along some journey, part of the journey in your life and, and, and been mad at yourself at some point for things you've done and said and choices you made? Some deal you signed you wished you didn't, you know, those kind of things. And so it reveals our hearts. And so the question is, what diligence will we give seeking God for answers and clarity so that we can put his word into operation in our life? Because again, if one application of the word leads to life, eternal life and blessing, and another application leads to destruction, I think it's important for us to consider uh, how we apply it. And especially, I want to learn how to apply it right in an age where many don't care what it is they do, and they don't care to obey it. So the title of my message today is called Applying the Bible to Your Life. How original. And I want to share with you five practices that will help you 
apply the Bible properly um, to your life. Now, by apply, I mean pick and choose that which you're going to put into your life. Pick and choose. Pick and choose. So my, my strong, you know, if you come from a fundamentalist background, you hate everything I just said in that sentence. If you come from a very conservative evangelical background, you mostly hate everything I just said in that sentence. I come from a background similar to that. I mostly come from an evangelical kind of, we, the gospel's got to be preached, the Bible needs to be studied, people need to be conscientiously converted, surrender their lives to Jesus. Folks, I still believe that. I haven't changed my mind on that. And I'm not really changing my mind. I'm just kind of opening the closet to, to what we all really know happens, but don't want to admit out loud. We all pick and choose which parts of the Bible we're going to obey and which parts we're not going to obey, or what we would probably say is, I'm not implementing that in my life, because I wouldn't want to call it obedience. And we all do it. We all pick and choose. And, um, and there are good reasons to pick and choose. Think about what I said. I can't one minute destroy my enemies, and another minute bless them. Right? Nod your head. I don't like where you're going with this. All I'm doing is getting honest with the big white elephant in the church's room. That's all I'm trying to do. Will you join me in that party? At least get to the end of it. Next week, I'll preach on debatable things. Don't miss that. You'll find out where I'm at on everything. So, <laughs> um, so, so here's the deal. As we look at this idea of what we put into practice, what we don't put in practice, for some of you, my method's not going to be strict enough. For others of you, it's going to be too strict. So let's get something clear at the outset of this message. I, I really believe what I said to you. I believe in demonic powers. I believe they're influential. I don't think they mostly come up to us individually. They work through higher levels of things like media, and it influences us at multiple levels, and they, they target the right people at the right time to influence the most people. Does that make sense? So I believe in that. I believe what the Bible calls doctrines of demons, that there's these teachings, and, and I believe it's important that those, and I believe there are people at the end of the age who will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. I believe that. And, I, and, and so while I'm, while I'm still there believing that, I also believe that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'm like going, which ones? The Old Testament ones? The Paul the Apostle ones? The Peter ones? The just straighten the gospel ones? All of them? Oh, God help. So uh, all the PhDs, in the world behind your name in the study of the scriptures. I've got a theology degree from X, Y, and Z place, and I got a PhD in this, and, and all of it's meaningless if you don't have a heart to do the will of God. And so people will quote other, they'll quote certain seminarians or scholars just like they did in Jesus' day. I'm sure these scholars in Jesus' day were quoted. Gamaliel said, well, so-and-so said, it, you know, and, uh, uh, Rabbi Akiva, everybody loved him. You know, he said, and, and they'll, they'll quote these people, but again, if you don't want to do the will of God, there's not a single other thing I can say today that's gonna help you. If you want to do the will of God, I believe there's grace for all of us to say, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you, but I don't have the power to take one step in this thing, and I'm looking for you to help me to move forward today. So I mean this with all honor and respect. I don't, I don't care whether you think my method's too strict or it's... Or it's uh, not strict enough. I care about pleasing Jesus with my teaching. I care about helping you grow in God. That's what pastors are supposed to do. 
We're not supposed to take a popularity vote on do you like the Bible and then let me lead according to the popular mass. That's not what I'm trying to do. With the fear of the Lord knowing I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ on the day of the Lord, I seek to interpret the scriptures and teach them with the best light I have in whatever the Holy Spirit gives me understanding. And I've changed my mind before, and I have no doubt at times we'll change it again. Not on Jesus, likely. If that happens, take me out back and stun me with rocks or something. I don't know. Throw me in that dumpster. I'm just kidding. Please don't. But uh, just get a better pastor. But anyway, uh, but I'm calling you to the same thing. Before you judge the method, before you judge all the stuff I'm going to say that's coming next, ask yourself a simple question. Do I want to please the Lord with my life? And if I'm resisting something that's being said, why am I resisting it? Is it based on wanting to please the Lord or is it based on wanting to please myself? All right, so we should just pray again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So let's dive right into applying the Bible. The first thing we need to do to apply the Bible, and by, by that I mean, remember, pick and choose what we're going to honor. We apply the Bible based on the proper covenant. So the Bible is divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. Most of you know that. If you open up your physical Bible, you have that. If you're on a digital one, it's set up the same way. Old Testament, New Testament. Those represent covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. And that, was, that got forged into like the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws that the Jews were supposed to keep. Then on top of that, later religious leaders began to add other laws to make sure that they would keep those laws so they'd make the distance so they wouldn't fail God. Then there was a new covenant that was instituted by Jesus Christ. Jesus came he came to fulfill that law, die on a cross for our sins, and rise again that those who believing in him would be saved. So in the first century church, what began to happen was some Jewish people who had got converted were insisting that the Gentile people, a Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish, who wasn't a part of that original covenant, said that those people needed to keep the law of Moses. So Paul the apostle comes on the scene, hears about all this stuff, and writes the whole letter in your Bible called Galatians, it's in your Bible. If you study it, uh, he unpacks this. And it was worthy to him to take five chapters. And let me tell you, I'm, gonna, I'm not, not going to read. I have to read the whole thing to you to do this, so I'm not going to. I'm going to summarize it. So I'm calling you read. There's a great Sunday afternoon thing. Go read the letter to the Galatians, someone called the book of Galatians. You can read it. But here's basically what happens. Paul the apostle writes, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle, and I wasn't called by man. I was called by God. Okay, Paul's coming out swinging. And then he says, and then he goes on to say, the gospel that I received, I didn't receive it from man. I received it from Jesus directly after he knocked me off my horse. Hello. By the way, I'm the Jew of Jews. I was trained in all this other stuff, and, and I forsook it to follow Jesus. So that's kind of like his first chapter, moving halfway into two. When he gets to halfway into chapter two, he begins to talk about famous people like Peter and James and these guys, and says, Peter came down, and Peter was, he didn't say this, so this is about, I'm about to, I'm about to super, um, the imaginative version of Jimmy Nyman. Hey, when Peter first, when Peter first came down to hang out with the Gentiles, he was eating, you know, pork barbecue with the other Gentiles, and James sent some other Jewish people to check out the liberty that we had in Christ, and they were spying out our liberty, and they didn't like what we were doing, so Peter goes, whoop threw the pork sandwich aside, and he began to play the hypocrite, so I rebuked Peter. Come on, Peter. Remember the dude we just talked about last week who walked on water? Moonwalked on water, hello. <laughs> so Peter, I'm not doing it again. Uh, 
So Peter, so Peter, who walked on water, Paul the apostle is rebuking Peter to his face saying, you're being a hypocrite. Come on, Barnabas, you're getting carried away with it too. Because they were, they, they, were, they, they were afraid of men. And he says, look, Peter, and he said, he said this out loud in front of everybody. Hey, Peter, you're not being straightforward about the gospel. This mixture, this idea of trying to incorporate Jewish laws, we couldn't even keep them as Jews. Why are we trying to add that to the people that are being converted? They just need to believe in Jesus Christ that he died for them, that he rose again and trust him for salvation. That's it. And any obedience will come because the Holy Spirit's working. He finishes the letter. He goes through a bunch of other stuff, talks about the covenant to Abraham and how Abraham, God made this promise to Abraham and then this law of Moses is introduced and it was meant to restrain us until the promise and Jesus could fulfill the original promise to Abraham. And he gets to the end of it. He says, you don't need all that. Don't get entangled in that yoke of bondage again. Trying to rule keep. All you need is to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says and obey him. You will convict you of righteousness, sin, and judgment. Now, in the modern day, while we don't have like Jewish people in our midst, usually, and while we don't have um, kind of people trying to keep the law, there's a way we approach the Bible in the same way, where we can make an idol out of the scriptures, and I'll look at that again at the end, and it gets in the way of, of us being able to surrender ourselves to, to Jesus and hear from the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that more at the end here. So, uh, it's, and I know some people that'll bother you what I'm saying. You're just saying, we don't need to obey the Bible. No, I'm saying the Holy Spirit, you can't even understand it without his help. And you need him to lead you into what, what he's dealing with. So yeah, you should read it. But you apply it based on the covenant. And, the, and here's why it matters. The law, the apostle said, was only designed to last until Christ came. And after Christ comes, we're not under that anymore. And why it matters is the covenant that you're under affects the way you approach. If you're a child of God, you approach God as your father. If you are not, if you see yourself at a distant relationship, you're going to approach God as some angry tyrant you're you're trying to appease. Instead of believing that he's giving you his nature in the form of the Holy Spirit and raising you to maturity, you're going to try to perform to get his love. You're going to try to perform to get the righteousness that he gave you freely in Christ. And what you really need to get free and what you really need to be righteous and what you really need to experience the love of God is simply believe that he already paid for it. You can't pay for something once it's paid for, right? If I go pay off your car bill and I'm not doing it, but if I did, you can't go pay for it. The bank's gonna say, no, that loan, that's already been satisfied. We can't satisfy the requirements of the law because Jesus already did it. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? If this is new to you, hang in there. So how should we read the Old Testament then? What's the point? Well, first of all, when I read the Old Testament, I try to see the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man. I'm not looking for it to show me all the details in the way I should live, but I'm looking at it to see how the details that he called men to live that they wouldn't. Once you get the law delivered in, in uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, then the book of Judges picks up. And I mean, Israel is already, as soon as Joshua's dead, they are off and doing stupid stuff because they didn't have a personal relationship with God. They were always relating to God through someone else. That's why it's important that you don't relate to God through your pastor or whoever it is. You've got to relate to God personally. At the, at the end of the day, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ personally. It won't be 
You're going to stand behind, get in line behind me. I'm first. I mean, I might be, but still you're going to face your own version of that. So uh, I, I look at the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man, and I, I begin to understand when I study the Old Testament God's interactions with people. And I see people, the law doing exactly what it does. The law was never meant to make one righteous. The Bible says the law was meant to show you that you sin and you need a savior. That's all its job was. And once it does that, once you say, yep, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, yep, fail, thou shalt not lie, oh, psh, toast, you know, thou shalt, you just walk through all the different things, thou shalt not covet, failed, everybody in this room failed that one at least once in their life. And, and so when I look at that, I just go, it, it's to show us that we need a savior. That's what it's meant to do. So I let it do that. I let it remind me of that. If even at a personal level, I read, I don't mind getting, oh yeah, man, I can't believe I ever said that to my dad. One time I was so mad at my dad, I told him to beep off, you know, and I was mad. I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably 17, 18 years old. He had said something that hurt me, but really I, he was riving. I was just mad that he was calling me to account for something. And I, and I remember after I got saved, and that was years later, and I began to read the Old Testament law, and anyone who curses mother or father should be put to death. I'm like, I deserve death. And then I'm like, thank God for Jesus. <laughs> you know, or I would have been under a rock pile at a young age, you know. So, I, I look at it, the Old Testament, to even see what it looks like loving God and loving people under the law. While the covenants changed, see, God's nature didn't. When God told the people, hey, if you see your neighbor's ox like straying, take it back to your neighbor. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's what's happening in there. So that's, that's what, part the, what part of the Bible you're reading will determine how you interpret it. It's why it matters that you know this. You know, one time, Think about the Jewish guys. They're, they're traveling with Jesus. This is when we should have got the lesson, right? They're traveling with Jesus. They're walking along. They go to Samaria. They go to preach the gospel. Samaria says, we don't want your gospel. And so the apostles say, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire on them like Elijah? I'm sure on one hand, Jesus goes, wow, I really marvel at your faith that you actually think you can do that. No. You don't know what manner of spirit you're of. You're of the wrong, wrong covenant, guys. Wrong spirit. You're on the old covenant thing. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. Now, I want you to understand, because some of you will hear me say that, and you say, see, there's no hell. No, there definitely is eternal judgment. Jesus came to save us from that. And you've got to answer, you've got to say yes to him for, to, to, uh, to step out of the pathway of that. But he really doesn't want to destroy men's lives. That, that lake of fire thing, that was made for the devil and his angels, not for people. But when people want to join the devil and his angels, God will let them. When I was in the world, man, I used to go say, you know, guys would get high. After I got converted, I talked to my friends, they're getting high, man, I'm going I'm to party in hell with Satan. I'm like, they're going to burn in a lake of fire with him. There's no party down there. You're not even going to see each other. The Bible says there's everlasting darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ain't seen nothing. It's just dark, painful, bad, separated from the presence of God, separated from the presence of anything that can even remotely be construed as love. Like even your worst day here has more love in it than what anyone will experience in hell. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. I came to save people from that. I better keep moving. Two, apply the Bible based on the meaning of the text. So sometimes we can read something and we got to ask ourselves the question, do I do what he says or do I do what he meant? Let me give you an example. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. 
It'd be better for you to enter heaven without your hand or your eye than to take it all, your whole body, into the lake of fire. Personally, I don't think Jesus meant. When I pick and choose what I'm going to do there to apply that, I notice, everybody hold up your hands. I notice we all seem to have most of ours. Now, unless you had some injury, you know, uh, most everybody, most everyone has theirs, or if you don't have it, you didn't do it because you were trying to deal with sin. <laughs> ah, you know, any guys in here ever struggle with lust? I notice we all see what's up. What's Jesus trying to say? I want you to hate it so bad. I want you to, the application is hate it so bad that, that in the way it would feel to, ah, you know, to take that thing off without anesthesia. He says, have that same zeal to get it out of your life. So many people I know when I talk to them about stuff they struggle with, I'm like, okay, but does your zeal look like gouging it out or cutting it off? Uh, no. There's grace to do that. How about this one? Um, Romans 16, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, 12, all command the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, some of you, you do greet me with a kiss once in a while. Uh, it's not American, but, uh, you know, I, I take it. But, 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 but <laughs> here's the question. Should I do what it says or understand what it means? I mean, would it be just as good to give a holy hug? How about a holy handshake? How about a holy fist bump? What's he trying to get at? I think the meaning of it is greet. I want people to come into Lifeway, and when they come into the assembly, they feel genuinely welcomed and appreciated just because they're a human, just because they're alive, just because they're here. We say, we love you. God loves you. Now, if you start running, you, you know, if you start doing crazy stuff in here, we're going to love you, but we're going to talk to you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you start running off the walls and get crap. We're going to, okay, 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 tone it down. You're scaring people. You know, because that love thing goes both ways, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. I want to understand the meaning, not just the statement. How about Jesus' statement when he's washing the disciples' feet? He says, just as I have done to you, do to one another. Present feet, you know, and we're walking around with water buckets. And is that really what he wanted? I've been in churches where we did that. Some of you are like, yeah, me too. I thought it's kind of fun. I mean, it could be cool. You could pray for each other. That's neat and all. It still was always strange for me, to be honest with you. Somebody else touching my feet, and it's usually another dude, and I'm just like, man, I'm working through this, bro. Uh, yeah. No, but I think what Jesus was really interested in is washing feet was a very low position in his day. And he's like, be willing to, the way I have served you, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you believe that I'm the Messiah, and yet I have stooped to wash your feet. Could you just do me uh, the honor of doing that to, to one another? Not the feet, but the willingness to go low. Serve one another, even if it seems below you. I know pastors who won't carry their own bags. They won't set up chairs in a, like a portable type setting. They won't serve in any way. And I think it's, it's because in their mind, it's below them. And I think Jesus would have take exception to that based upon what he meant by what he said. If you think it's going to be controversial today, it'll be this one. See, I just, I told you up front. Notice how everybody went. <laughs> Pick or choose or apply the Bible based on the circumstance. 
The circumstance is asking, what's the occasion and culture by which this writing or moment in the writing is coming up in the Bible? Let me give you some examples that, would be, that are fairly obvious for students of the Bible. Like, like the Bible talks in 1 Corinthians 11, it gives this whole process about wearing head coverings. And some of you come from those backgrounds, some of you may still be in them. We've had uh, people join us in our prayer meetings, They're still, they still wear head coverings to this day, and, and uh, regardless of how they understand the scriptures and, and all that stuff. And the, so when I look at the occasion, it, when we talk about an occasion thing, we're talking about why did the apostle mention that to the Corinthian church, but not to the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia? The, usually they mention stuff if it's important. So why didn't he? How about drink a little wine for your stomach's sake? You know, someone like, hey, I'll drink a lot of wine for my stomach's sake. Glory to God. <laughs> Depends how you feel about that, right? But was Paul being Dr. Paul right there and writing a prescription? What if your stomach issue required, if you drank wine, it might make you, you know, have other problems. And so that was a real specific advice for a real specific circumstance. You can get really picky about it, like greet, greet the church that meets at uh, Phoebe's house or Lydia's house, and, and you're like, I can't do that when I'm studying the Bible. But you can understand the, the meaning behind the circumstance, right? How about this one? P uh, Peter is coming in. Try, try to apply this one. Imagine this. I'm the church leader. Somebody tells me, yeah, brother, I gave $5,000 to the offering. And, and, and so that's getting around the community. And I call them up here and I say, so Ananias, talk to me. Did you give $5,000 to the offering? Yes, yes, we did. You, how has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit for this? These men are going to carry your body out, and boop, he drops dead right in the middle of the church service. This is New Testament, by the way. That'll mess with your head, mess with mine. And I'm like, what? God of grace, just drop someone dead in church. I said this to the, uh, our core disciples the other night. I said, I, I, I think they went to heaven. I think they were children of God. I think they got the, they got the uh, eternal spanking of a lifetime. But I, I think God did that to spare them, and wanted to tell the church, I want holiness in the church. I don't want lying. Now, how would you like me to apply that? Was that a one-time deal for God to make a point? Or should every time I think somebody's lying, should I call them up and say, this has a practical application today? Are you scared yet? Like, uh, I haven't lied about my offering, but I've lied about a lot of other stuff. You know, well, we'd have a church dropping dead, right? That wasn't the point. And so that's why that's circumstantial. There's another time when in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul's addressing a man who's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul's like, and you people aren't freaked out. This is what you need to do. Here's what Paul calls them to do. I want you to get the whole church together. Because you guys have already tried to talk to this guy. I want you to get the whole church together. And then I want you to have this prayer meeting. And I, you invite the presence of Jesus. And then my spirit will be present also. Then I want you to turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, his body, that his soul might be saved on the day of judgment. Anybody been in a church service where that got practice? So we already, we, we see, we recognize there are moments to apply things and moments not to. And somehow by the Holy Spirit, we discern these things. Are, are, you, make, are you following me? If not... We're in disobedience then, you know? One of my favorite is, I don't permit women to speak in church. At which point? Like when they walk through the door? Uh, uh, you know, at, at, when the music starts? When the service ends, are they allowed to talk again? Are you following me? My point is there's a circumstance that we don't understand the background of why it was happening. I've heard scholars, I've read all the stuff. We'll look at this next week, to be continued, undebatable things. Come back and I'll finish that. But all I want to point out right now is there are circumstances whereby we apply things. Take the holy kiss again. When I was in Argentina, 
Every, everybody walked, everybody walked up. I was told they'd kiss everybody, so, so all these girls were walking up kissing me on the cheek. I, mean, I was engaged, so I can't say that that was fun at the time, but, uh, but and I'm like, all right. Well, then I start walking up. I thought everybody did. I'm walking up to dudes going, guess what I learned? The guys don't do that. It was embarrassing, right? Because greet one another with a holy kiss, even in Argentina, had a context. I was just listening to a famous Bible expositor talk about that passage, and he said, I think we should do it, but I think it should be like guy to guy and girl to girl. But yet that's not in the passage. He's interpreting, and he's applying something. It's not there in the text itself. Are you following me? What are we doing? We're picking and choosing. That's what we're doing. Four, apply the Bible based on revelation from relationship with Jesus. I'm not probably saying that in a great way, so I want to clarify what I mean. You could only know God's word if you have a real and practical daily relationship with Jesus Christ. Where do you get that, Jimmy? In Luke 24, verse 45, it says this, he opened their understanding, his disciples, that they might comprehend the scriptures. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You know what that means? Their understanding was previously closed. That's what it means. I don't have to open up something that's already open. And there's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of mind, people out there that think, I can just read the Bible and I'll just get it. Well, listen, let me show you people who read the Bible who didn't get it. Of the religious scholars of his day, Jesus said in John 5, 37, and I've said this here so many times, some of you are sick of hearing me say it, but I just care about pointing you to Jesus. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, you, the scholars of Jesus' day, you've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Listen to what he says about them. He doesn't deny their involvement in the scriptures. You, so you're, let me rephrase that. His word does not abide in you. And then he goes on to say, you study the scriptures diligently, but his word doesn't abide in you. Because you think that in those scriptures, you have eternal life, folks. That's the danger of making a Bible an idol. And it's not, many of you, it's not your fault, depending upon the tradition you came from. You were told, it's all about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. People were so afraid of us getting off. Like, like if I hear the Holy Spirit, I'm going to, and, and these people claim to hear the Holy Spirit, but they're just going to do something weird. Well, I've seen people do a lot of weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit. All they had to do is test it against the Scriptures. But there are things like, there were things that I got convicted about in my relationship with Jesus. Like the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not smoke cigarettes. But I got convicted by the Holy Spirit that my body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, that I needed to change that for health. I needed to change that for honor. And so I just did. I didn't find a verse on it. Christians didn't, thankfully the group I was in didn't shame me into it. I just knew inside it was wrong. And he says, of them, you search the scriptures diligently, but you won't come to me. See, Jesus died to reconcile us into a relationship with God. Okay, so you guys, have I made clear that I value the Bible? Are we clear enough for those who've been around life? You know I value the scriptures, right? Because I'm going to ask you an important question. It's going to make it seem like I don't. But really what I'm trying to do is cut to the heart of the matter inside you. Can a person have a real, eternal life-giving relationship with Jesus without a Bible? Yes. There was a YWAM. I just watched a, a video the other day of a, 
uh, uh, YWAM, so uh, youth, with, youth with a Mission. Some of you think, by the way, I, we did this survey, and there's people that think we don't have missionaries. We do have missionaries. But you guys, we got some heavily funded missionaries. They serve in YWAM in Kona. They started out in New Zealand. It's, uh, uh, you know, Danny and Gina Av- uh, Avila, and, or Avila, or I always say it wrong. Anyway, those guys. So they are there, and what they've done is they've taken this in Bible poverty where they're translating the Bible into different languages. One of their team members went into the Himalayas, trekked, 108 miles and met a lady who had a relationship with Jesus because she heard the gospel, but she had no Bible. She had been this way for six years. When they talked to her about how she, how she was growing in the Lord, they said she knew scripture verses having never learned the scripture verses. Well, it's almost like the Holy Spirit does his job, people. Let me ask you something. If the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible, can he re-inspire it? In other words, the one who inspired the writing of it, can he teach someone its contents? And so she found this lady. Well, and here's the other thing. Had she had a Bible, it wouldn't have mattered because she was illiterate. Did you know there are 775, 750 to 775 million illiterate people on the planet today? And I believe that if I preach the gospel to them and they say yes to Jesus, they can be saved. And so here's the question. And I will say this, they, they finally did give her an audio Bible, and she loved it. She, she's probably growing like crazy. And that which leads to the next point, what's the advantage of having a Bible then? If I can have a relationship with that one, what's the advantage? Peter says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it. You grow faster, healthier, and you have checks and balances. That's the advantage. But you don't need to have a Bible to have a relationship with God. And you don't need to be literate to have a relationship with God. And, and just to underscore this point, because that's still going to bother some of you, so just Listen. Do you realize that the Gutenberg press got invented around 1460? Ponder that. Church is born around, you know, whatever, 3, 4, 5 AD, something like that, 6 AD. So from 6 AD to 1460, you couldn't even go buy a Bible if you wanted to. You would have to go to a, they, they were handwritten in that day. You would have to go to a, a local place where somebody read the scroll to you and that kind of thing. And no one had a complete thing like you have it today. The privilege of what we have today is a big deal. But in 1460, in the, in the next few years, they only printed like five Bibles a year, and you had to be rich, and you had to be literate to even have one. It wasn't until the 1800s, the, like the, getting into the late 1800s where literacy increased. It wasn't until 1920 where uh, maybe like it was 40% of Americans were literate. How did they function? Let me ask you this. The Bible says Enoch walked with God. How did Enoch walk with God? He had no Bible. He didn't even have an Old Testament. Walking with God is supernatural. This thing is a supernatural relationship. And we, gotta have a, and we need to have this supernatural relationship in order to walk with Jesus, which leads to my fifth and final point. Apply the Bible from the position of humility. Why didn't the Bible scholars of Jesus' day come to him as Lord of their lives? They were proud. In their mind, they knew it all. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, Here's the the kind of people that God wants to hang out with and look upon. These are the ones I look on with favor. How many want God to look on you with favor? Those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word. Tremble doesn't mean be afraid of it. It's more like if I'm gonna work in an electrical transformer, I'm very, I, I I love the privilege that electricity brings us, but I'm hanging out with seriously high voltage because I did that stuff in the Marine Corps. Bro, you're, you're high alert, you're like, Okay, I mean, if I do something stupid here, I'm dead or blasted across the, you know, 
So you want to be real wise about that stuff. So my electricians here know what I'm talking about. You got to be wise about that stuff. It's that kind of trembling, the reverence for what's in front of me. Understanding the power of what it gives me, that kind of trembling, not be afraid, but have a healthy kind of reality, being aware of what's in front of you. To operate from a position of humility means that we allow the Bible and God to confront what we think we already know. That is hard for every human being here, including the guy talking to you. Humility is not something you bump into by accident. It's something you choose. When someone challenges you, you go, okay. And you're, and me, and, and, and my first, when you're challenging me, just know on the inside, unless I'm really in a uber humble mode, which is like 89% of the time, not what's happening. And occasionally my own stupidity leads me there. You come up, you check me on something on the outside. I'm going, okay, brother, <laughs> sister, <laughs> smiling at you religiously. It's when I get away and I go pray with the Lord, say, Lord, is that true? Talk to me. Yeah, Jimmy, I've been trying to talk to you about this, but you've been resisting, so I, I needed to send somebody. Okay, well, I repent. Repent means change your mind. Humility is the ability to change your mind and to know where you fit in the scheme of things. There is one God and you're not him. And this is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day could not do, that we must do if we will follow Jesus and understand his word. Would you stand your feet? Remember, in this talking about picking and choosing Bible verses, if you get honest with your heart today, you do it. We all do it. There's a lot of ladies here. Most of you aren't wearing head coverings. You say, Jimmy, you let women teach church. There's things that we've, that we decided again next week, I'll hit the debatable things and help us navigate what truly makes something debatable and where are we just defying God. But the bottom line is sometimes we choose to honor one verse while rejecting another. So here's the question I have for you this morning. Please pay attention to this. What guides your doing it? When you choose one and reject another, what guides you? in making that decision. Are you living to please God? Or are you living to please yourself? Are you looking for ways around the will of God to do your own desires? Are you looking to the Bible for proof text to get away with it? Or do you come with a desire to surrender to the will of God? Or do maybe some of you even avoid the Bible so you don't even need to know what it says. Like, I don't wanna know what it says because then I'm not accountable for what it says. I know people, I've had people tell me they do that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're still accountable. Like that heart tells God, oh, I don't even know what they're thinking. I'm like, okay, so an omniscient God didn't just hear that conversation. Okay. But maybe that's in your heart. You just like, so because when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to applying it to our lives, when it comes to walking with Jesus Christ, motives matter. So the question is what's motivating you? And you can tell me that you feel comfortable with a particular lifestyle choice the Bible condemns, but I want you to know God's not fooled. The, the God of the universe looks inside your heart with love, with a desire, which I wish you would change because that thing you're hanging on to is keeping you from what is so much better that I have for your life. He knows what's truly in your conscience. You know, the Bible warns us 
against having a seared conscience. A seared conscience happens when the Holy Spirit goes to convict you and you keep saying, no, I'm not changing. He convicts you, no, I'm not changing. He convicts you, no, I'm not changing. And every time your conscience is like calluses on your hand when you do things where you get to where you can't feel the, the, the nerve endings and the callus anymore because you become calloused to God's spirit trying to speak to you. Maybe, we, I, well, I think we've all done it. The good thing I know about calluses, people said, you get a seared conscience, there's no hope for you. I'm like, I, I don't really buy that. I mean, a true searing maybe, but calluses? I used to play guitar. I have a, like, some people don't believe it in, in the worship team here, but I used to play guitar and not as good as these guys. But, but uh, my calluses, I don't have them anymore because I've not, with the pressure put up against my body, put up resistance to resist the pressure and the pain coming its way. And sometimes the Holy Spirit's conviction pains us, but he's doing it because he loves us. He's, he's doing it to make you a part of the family of God, to make you a part of that relationship that you need so that he could open your understanding to comprehend the scriptures. I want you to do something right now before I preach the gospel or anything else. Would you just close your eyes and talk to God on the inside? You don't have to pray this out loud, but I'm just asking you to pray it in your mind. God, will you make my conscience sensitive again? I wanna feel what you feel about everything. I wanna love what you love, and I wanna hate what you hate. If it's injustice to you, it's injustice to me. If it's righteous to you, it's righteous to me. I just wanna take a moment in silence, and I want you to say to the Lord on the inside after I, after I pray this, Inside, we're going to take just a, just a minute, maybe, or, or 30 seconds. I just want you to, Lord, is there anything that you've been convicting me about that I've not surrendered? I'm ready to talk about it now. I don't want to have a religious front, but not come to you. I want to come to you right now in this relationship. Just let him talk to you. See what comes to mind. And don't avoid it. Let your conscience be sensitive. that thing that causes you shame, he loves you right there in that moment, right there. And he wants to heal your shame through what Jesus did. All you have to do is receive Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're just re-exercising the faith you already have. If you're not, if you've come to church, some people have come to church throughout their life, but they've never actually asked Jesus to be Lord of their life. They've never asked the Holy Spirit to fill them. They've never done that. Or, or they, they, they've come to church, or they did, they prayed a prayer like I did when I was eight years old, but it just wasn't real. It wasn't until I was 18 that I got, that I really got saved. And, I, and so I'm, by say, we say got saved, we're meaning we received what Jesus did and let him rescue us from, from an infernal separation apart from God. Receiving that gift of eternal life. And the only reason I could find that anyone would not surrender to that gift is the aforementioned pride and a lack of humility because everyone needs this gift. Here's how you receive it. Jesus came from heaven. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again, paying the penalty of your sins so you wouldn't have to. That anyone believing in him confess their sins at the, at the mercy of Jesus. He will forgive. Okay, he can have eternal life. 
Now, I want to warn you, once you do this, he acts like he owns you or something, and he comes and talks to you about all your stuff. When I was born again, it felt like my conscience was the first thing. I didn't have power immediately to conquer stuff. At least I wasn't conscious of how to apply it. And over a time period of the next six months from the time I said yes to Jesus, I found power to walk free from the things that held me in bondage. Don't let it, don't let you where you're at now determine whether you'll say yes. Say yes and see God change you now. If you're here today and you're saying, man, I want to receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand high right now. I'm not going to call you up. Just raise your hand up. Be bold. Yes. Anybody else? Be bold. Okay. Put your hands up. The rest of you, we did a little conscience exercise to, to get our conscience awakened. As I pray right now, I'm going to invite you to hold that thing out from before the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Say this. Say, God, I come to you in Jesus' name. I confess that Jesus is Lord of my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to forgive me of a seared conscience. And I'm asking you to make me sensitive to you again. I want to feel what you feel. I want my heart tender to you. When I fail, I'm asking you to correct me. When I repent, I'm asking you to strengthen me, to stand back up and to continue to walk this relationship out with you until the day I see your face. So fill me with the Holy Spirit, with the power of God to accomplish that and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give God thanks. Let's just say yes, Jesus.